you know what I'm looking forward to every time I walk into the restaurants? I just, I can still hear people's murmur, you know, the, you know, the chatter, the, the ding ding, you know, the little kind of chin chin and, and so on, and people laughing, and that's what I miss the most. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. I've taught myself to not worry about things I can't control. It's a statement by a few during the last year on Deep in the Weeds. That moment when change appears to be a negative, but time and space has given enough pause to find positives in change and turn it into opportunity. Joe Varghetto is the chef and owner of Mr. Bianco and Massey. Joe, how are you? Very well, thank you. It's um, it's, uh, it's a beautiful day outside and uh, it's all everything seems to be okay. So how are you? I'm good. Thank you for asking. It's good to have you on the show. Um, you've had, you like many in the hospitality sector, have had a hell of a time in the last year and a half. But, you know, there's some positive moves and some changes um, afoot for you um, with Massey. Do you want to tell us about what you're doing? Absolutely. So um, I've had this, uh, well, under my arm uh, for a while. Um, uh, we had a long conversation with Maurizio from uh, Icebergs, Maurizio Tazzini, which is a Melbourne boy. And, you know, we lost him 20-odd years ago to Sydney, which uh, <laughs> which was not, not a good thing for Melbourne, uh, very good for Sydney. Um and we've been talking about this for a while and I've always wanted, you know, we've been friends for, for quite some time. We've been family friends as well. And I said, okay, I think we're both mature enough now. Um, let's do something together. So we, we're basically going back to our, our garage roots in the sense of, you know, growing up in an Italian family and doing most of the, pro, most of the food and things like that in the garage. And, and that's something that we want to uh, rekindle. Uh, between us with the fantastic uh, service that uh, Maurizio and his now son, his son Sylvester, will be manning the ship at the front uh, on the floor. And the kitchen will be obviously with me and my team and re-canting, re, re let's say, or recollecting some of the, the dishes and so on that um, our parents uh, cooked in the garage and, you know, because Melbourne didn't have very much food to offer, let's say, they had very, you know, basic products like semolina and, you know, milk and things like that. And mum would make her pasta and uh, make her own ricotta. So if you want, if you wanted anything to be like the Italian of, uh, of homeland, you had to make it, you couldn't go to the shop. So that's what we're going to do. What's it been like during this time? You've um, had so many lockdowns and you're currently in one, but something to focus on and look forward to, what impact has it had on you? So, the in hospitality, you need to be resilient. And, you know, I started my, my apprenticeship, um, let's say 20 odd, 27 years ago and, uh, resilience and whether it be in hospitality or any other industry you need to, need to carry. Um, now with, with COVID, it's nothing that I've ever seen in my life. And it's, it's something that I, I think I had to pull together very, very quickly, not just myself, but the whole industry. Um, there has been some absolute highlights as in as in inspiration in Melbourne and in Sydney as well and some of the products that Sydney's doing at the moment is just absolutely fantastic some of the some of the products that you know the the chefs around Melbourne are doing absolutely phenomenal um, 
I'm, I have to say I was a little bit lucky maybe um, because I still have a lot of family in Italy and I still have a lot of family in the north of Italy and the south of Italy. Uh, right on the onset in March, my, the, southern, the southern Italy didn't really even know that COVID existed, but in northern Italy in Bergamo. And luckily I had, I wouldn't say lucky, it's not a good word. Um, uh, he was a doctor in the emergency ward in Bergamo and him and I kind of send messages to each other and say, hi, how are you, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of the times I never really, I rarely kind of check them because, you know, they're kind of be funny little skits or memes or whatever the, the things are. Um, but this time I listened to it and it was in a deep northern accent voice. And he said, hey, Joe, make sure this uh, virus, you don't, 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 whatever you do, don't think it's a joke. And he went into his, um, his experiences working the emergency ward there. And I, I was, uh, I think I was probably in tears sitting on the couch. I think it was late night in early March last year. And some of the things that he explained that he had to do. Of, I think the fact of him having to kind of play God in a lot of instances. And, you know, like, for example, someone would come in with a broken arm and they'd leave with, with COVID and they didn't even know. And then they just spread it amongst their family and, and that was some of the things. And then because I just didn't have any room to put, the, you know, again, to put the bodies and so on, they had to, you know, um, and some families didn't even, couldn't even say goodbye, you know, properly, uh, not even a burial or however. So having that insight really, really early on in the piece. Um, and then I saw some of my friends that have, you know, two or three star Michelin restaurants in Northern Italy, they were doing uh, pre-packaged lasagna and so on. And I thought, oh, okay, it's not a joke. If, uh, you know, some of these high-end, very, very famous um, Italian restaurants were doing this, I said, okay, I better, I better organize myself. So I started. I started and I called it the Italian job. So many of Mini Australia and Mini Mini Doncaster here gave me a couple of cars and we just I did a quick menu and and it just literally from the tenth of March and then it just went into lockdown and and we were just inundated with you know f and no one knew what was going to happen so you know you saw the toilet toilet paper shelves being being uh, ransacked and food and you know no one knew what was going to happen so and then obviously now it's kind of stabilised slightly. Uh, but we're still here. We're still cooking. I still have my team, uh, the beautiful team around me, uh, whether it be at Mr. Bianco and Massey. Uh, we've had some fam fabulous support around us, you know, being the community, the close community, whether it be Kew or, or Hawthorne or Melbourne City or just um, and just, just everyone. I think one of the things that I learned and have learned very, very quickly is that the community is one of the most important things that we need to kind of uh, focus on. Without that, we're kind of nothing. And I think we've, well, I think we, we, we forgot about that. We started looking, you know, too far ahead, too far in front. And um, the people that are very close to us, and or you know, I think that's the only thing that we can kind of, you know, control. Let's say. Um, and. If I'm good and, and we create a really beautiful community and we're quite united and we have a beautiful solid, you know, we have some solidarity amongst us, we can get through this stuff. But um, I I really, re really respect what, the, you know, our communities have, uh, have done. It's just some people that I have, don't, don't, ha don't have anything, don't have anything, but they, they give to others. And how I've actually even seen hospitality, like some, we don't have very much to give, 
But now we're actually giving to the homeless. We're giving to charities. We're giving so-and-so. So our industry has a lot of depth, has a, has a depth and, a, and a, a beauty about it. As much as it is, it's hard and long hours and you cut and burn yourself. And, you know, sometimes you have to put up with some customers and not, not very nice or there's, you know, things that are, are but um, we have to say that our industry is, 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 is pretty brilliant. Um, yeah. This new pop-up that you'll be doing at Massey, um, it's a reconnection with the past. Has this whole experience of the last two years changed you and the way that you approach your cookery moving forward? Uh, uh, absolutely, without a doubt. Um, I've, I've, you know, worked in some really high-end places, you know, like Northern Italy. I worked for Gualtiero Marquez in a three-star Michelin restaurant that um, – and any restaurant like that, whether it be there or anywhere in Europe or, you know, in New York or um, these places, we used to throw away a lot of food, like, you know, every service fresh, every service fresh, every ser- without a without without even testing or checking or whatever else. So having that, having that kind of instilled into you, now looking at um, where we're going with a lot of these things is that we need to be you know, sustainable. We need to be uh, very conscious of our, our food sources um, and reconnecting um, with the things that I was taught, I think, at a young, as a young age. You know, my mother taught me about um, you need to have a story in the sense of, you know, who the food is coming from. You need to understand where, you're, where who your producer is because if he or she is not um, uh, rearing or growing the vegetables or the, the cow right, um, you'll never have a plate of food in front of you um, done properly. So it doesn't matter what the cook does. If the lamb is stressed and the and the vegetables um, don't have the right nutrients or not grown correctly, it doesn't matter what you do and and vice versa. You know, you might get some beautiful, beautiful produce that's coming through, but if the chef doesn't know how to cook it, it doesn't matter. You can say it comes from here, it comes from there, but if it tastes like that, it's not good, you know. Um so I, I think that's where, where it's, it's all coming about. And, and I think these are lessons as well that I don't want to forget. Like sometimes you have these kind of big jolts in your life and you go, you know what, I'm going to be different. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then you just move back to this kind of norm. And everyone says, oh, let's go back to the norm. I don't think, I don't think a lot of people want to go back to that norm. You know, like people working from home and a lot of the f- uh, friends of mine that are, you know, that had to kind of sit in the car for an hour ago, I don't want to go back to that. I really don't want to sit on the Tullamarine Freeway or the Nepean Highway or for an hour, you know, looking out the window. And I'd rather work from home and maybe create hours of operation or hours of um, of their of their life that they can um, they can maintain whilst having and looking uh, and looking after their family. Tell us about uh, food when you were young. What sort of role did it play in your family? Fabulous question. Food uh, role was basically something that was the, the, the ultimate kingpin. So when mum would call out or dad would call out, hey, the food's on the table, you didn't kind of stagger your way there. You would run there, right? You would run because you only ate at those certain times. Um, and it, food always brought the family together. And everyone says, you know, that the, you know, the male of the family and, and so on, but I don't, I don't, I, from my, from my opinion, my point of view, I don't really see that because mum ruled the roost, you know, 
dad may have had the kind of, you know, a bit of a say or so on, but mum ruled the roost through food. So, and sometimes you would even, you would even know that mum would be uh, in a bad mood because sometimes the sauce wasn't right or, you know, this, you know, and you could just tell through, through flavors. Um, and it was, it was everything to do. And you'd see the food in front of you and you could look outside and you know, it's, it's that season. Artichokes were on the table. Yep. This is the artichoke season, broad beans, peaches, raspberries, or, you know, different berries or, and then when tomatoes came along, when I started to see the tomatoes ripen, I go, oh shit, now it's so much work in front of me. So I'd wake, we'd wake up early and we'd do the tomato sauce and then we'd do the peeled tomatoes and then we'd do the semi-dried tomatoes on the roof and then this, the dried sugo on the top, you know, which is the, the kind of the strutto, the passata. And then, and then we'd obviously later on carry on to sausages and salamis and then we'd do all the, you know, during the same, similar time of the sauce, we'd do all the pickles and, um, you know, all the zucchini under oil and, and I remember as a kid, I was like, oh, just so many Sunday mornings would wake up and, and just work right, you know, too late. And, you know, and there was no gas burners, like to do all the tomato sauce and things like that in the bottle. We'd do it outside in the backyard and we'd just have all this, all this wood that we'd, you know, and we'd have to kind of add another log, add another log, you know, to keep it that nice simmer gentle uh, to cook all the, the, the tomato bottles. So it was a central part of our life. Um, and looking back, thinking, wow, what an experience, what an absolute experience. And, and not just food, you understand uh, seasons, you understand how life is, you understand the nutrition in soils, you understand all these things without actually even going to learn them. You just, because you experienced it, you would just say, okay, now I understand. So, you know, dad would always put the kind of chicken manure into the soils and, and all this kind of new fertilizer, never bought stuff, always natural things. And, the fr- you know, the, the, the vegetables that we used to grow in the back or all the plums and all the things were just beautiful. So, yeah, food was literally the, the ultimate. Tell us about the moment you realized that chefing was a career for you. Do, you. do you remember your first day in a commercial kitchen? Yes, absolutely. So I was going to university. I was going to become, uh, I was doing uh, economics. Uh, I was uh, doing a degree of commerce and I, I liked it, but I, th- I think it wasn't my passion. Um, and one day um, a gentleman no, a friend of friend of the family said, "Why don't you get a job at like you know washing dishes or so on?" But luckily, or let's say, it was at Florentino. So, 1994, I went upstairs, went through the kitchen, got changed in the back there, got dressed, a t-shirt and whatever. And to be honest with you, the reason why I went to there was because it was near the metro and it was in the city and it was all the nightclubs and you know I'd work until 11:30, 12, whatever time we finished, and then I just kind of walk up to all the nightclubs and whatever else and then hang out till probably two days later, you know, I'd go home. Um, so, <laughs> so that was, it was fun. And then one day um, the chef there, his name was um, Mark Haynes. He said to me, he goes, why don't you be a chef? And I went, maybe so. So I went home. I went home and I said, mum, you know, I think maybe I want to be a chef. And mum looked at me and went, what are you talking about? You're going, you're 
and, she, and I might defer or I might go back, but I want to I want to do it for a year or so. I want to have a look. And she never she didn't talk to me for about six months. <laughs> and I enrolled into Box Hill TAFE, and uh, and I remember putting on the jacket and walking into the kitchen. I was nervous as hell because I didn't know what what I had to do. And my first job was two box picking two boxes of spinach at night. With, peel like a bag of onions and and if the job wasn't done we didn't leave and seriously i think it was like 250 bucks for about 120 hours you know cleaning the cool room to to the point and it was just out of control and would i change anything of it absolutely not it just it got me to the point of every day was a challenge and it challenged me to the point where i more and more and more, I, I thirsted in it and I just wanted more of it. So one day I walked into the next door where the Hill of Content and there was these magazines called uh, Cuisine. And in it was, you know, Bocuse d'Or and Paul Bocuse and um, all these top end, top end, you know, French restaurants, Italian restaurants in this magazine. And I said, no, I want to go there. So once I finished my apprenticeship, literally the day I finished my apprenticeship, and I did it, you know, I did it in a, in a sense of a early release. So in two and a half years, it was supposed to be four. I did it in two and a half years. I did all the tests and worked through them all. Plane ticket on the plane to Italy, and and that's it. And then I worked there for a couple of years, and then. Um, my mother wasn't too well, so I had to come, not I had to come home, but I just, I had that, you know, that, that feeling of regret if something were to happen and I wasn't around, you know, you'd live it, live with it for the rest of your life. So I came home and I was very, very, uh, fortunate to be Philippe Michel's second in charge at Langton's. So that's, so again, as much as it's been hard on this side, uh, I've been, you know, very fortunate and uh, privileged to have this experience. Tell us about uh, working in Italy. How how different is it to Italian restaurants in in Australia? Very, 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 very different. Um, when I ex- explained some of the, these experiences that I was having in Italy to my dad, he goes, "Ah, you know what." When I was uh, your age, we had the military, so we had to do the military for two years. Just think, it's your military. I went. All right. All right. I think of it like that then. So just if you can kind of read, read between the lines here, uh, it was it was a military. It was perfect. Everything had to be clean. Everything had to be schmick, schmick, schmick. You'd get in there by seven. You didn't finish until midnight. You'd have maybe an hour or two in, be- in between. But at 11 o'clock, we ate. Everyone out of the kitchen, I sit down for 15 minutes, 20 minutes to eat something. And then at five o'clock, the same thing. So we didn't do that many covers. Like in a, in a Michelin starred restaurant, you do 50 covers maximum, you know, for lunch and 50 covers. Max- There's no more. You couldn't, can't do any less anymore. It's just what we did. And we had what, 24 odd in the kitchen, um, stagisti, you know, people from overseas doing three months and so on. And, you know, Carlo Cracco was the head chef at the time, and he was a young Carlo Cracco, you know, wild um, stallion, you know, just wanting to wanting to run. So can you imagine that? Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, it, was, it was very, very hard, um, but those, that, ha- that, those that, are, that have succeeded in that kitchen, they went on to um, – 
you know, to work with Alain Ducasse or they went to Monte Carlo or they worked uh, in um, all the, the starred Michelin restaurants in England. Um, and now they have <clears throat> some ultimate, ultimate restaurants in Italy as well. So it, it was, it was a, it was a, yeah, it was, it was a very, very um, eye-opening time for me. You came back to Australia, as you mentioned, and worked with Philippe Michel. What, what, tell us about that time. What were the really integral moments for you during that period? Absolutely. So Philippe had um, the Daimaru uh, Paul Bocuse restaurant had finished um, and he was opening a restaurant with uh, Stuart Langton um, at now it's called Chaconis, but back then it was uh, Langton's with Philippe Michel. And I uh, was searching for something that I could obviously get that I was like in Europe and meeting the man and uh, working for him. It was, it was basically like that I was in, you know, whether it be in Lyon or, or in Paris or, you know, in Milano. Or, again, it was that style of food and it was that type of um, top end things and no, and no corners cut nothing ever was you know it was recipe it was precision it was and the 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 man that he is which is you know Philippe Michel he's a gentleman never once did i hear him ever raise his voice ever do anything bad to anyone to the point where i was looking at other chefs that i'd worked for and and i went i want to be like this guy because the other ones were just out of control. What maybe because they were a little bit young or immature or whatever else, but Jesus Christ, man, there was like, you know, it was at some stage it was just like a you know, kind of a screaming match. No, not and but not a match. It was just one way of uh, one one side of a, a screaming. So I came here and, and um we worked we worked really hard to opening the pl- uh, opening the place, and then the Bonnet stove came in, and everything you know was was delivered into into Langtons, and and for me it was just uh, again the ultimate that I had that opportunity to work at a, at a beautiful European style restaurant in Melbourne, and Melbourne never seen this before. It was the first of its kind, and then it was just hugely hugely busy. Like we were doing four hundred covers a day. Uh, you know, for six days a week, we'd yeah, absolutely. You know, like two hundred and fifty for lunch, and you know, two hundred and something. You know, plus the bar, and it was just just crazy, crazy, crazy. And then he uh, had a, a really good uh, opportunity to go up to Sydney, and Jeremy Strode uh, took on the reins, and I was his sous chef for a um, for a, for a couple of years, and. Very different styles, very different type of food, but very similar um, temperaments in the sense of, you know, never once did I see Jeremy scream. Never once did I, you know, we got we got along very very well. And, um, but you know, um, it's uh, I think you know for for some people they 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 probably find it just some different some different styles. But again, he's. His food was just absolutely, you know, mind blowing. You know, flavors and to do the to do those numbers and create that uh, that that quality uh, was 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 absolutely amazing. When did you start to feel like you wanted to do your own thing and express yourself on a plate and and create your own restaurant? So one thing I did say to myself is that I've worked for a lot of let's say freestanding restaurants. Uh, being, you know, overseas and in Australia, and 
Um, and and some really 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 good uh, chefs in in between. I'd go and do st- um, stages at uh, you know at uh, in Imola or in, in Modena and go and work for you know just for days or go work at bakeries or pastry shops and things like that. But I never worked in a large hotel. I had the opportunity to be the executive sous at Crown for a couple of years, and I said one thing I want to do is see how you know a a hotel of that size and that magnitude works. Obviously, a co- the first couple of months was, I think, a, a huge learning curve. But, um, but it was I wasn't I wasn't in charge of the hotel. I was more, mainly in charge of uh, you know two hundred plus chefs and ten different outlets uh, and so on. And I wanted to do it for a certain period of time to understand, you know, how to do budgets and how to do so on, and just to kind of round myself off in the sense of, you know, using my business acumen rather than just, um, you know, just total um, hard work. And I did that. And then during that same time, I I kind of understood myself. Uh, I'm not a chef that wants to sit in an office. I actually am someone that actually likes to be amongst people, be in the kitchen, uh, meet producers, understand food and so on. And I think that's where obviously – you know, being my mum, the first kind of cook that I ever knew, uh, that's where I, that's what I like doing. And once I kind of understood that, and I always had the burning desire to do my own thing, and it's not because I want to do my own thing because I have an ego. It's more the fact that um, I believe that if to do it, you're actually doing it because you want to create like an extension of your home. It's literally, it's your lounge room or it's your dining room and you have guests coming in to, to, to eat somewhere at, at your place because they, they want to be part of that, that story. So, and that's what, I, that's what I wanted to do. So I opened up my first place, which was, uh, funnily enough, it was more the fact it was more of a French bistro. Uh, you know, we, and it was a top end of Little Burke Street um, right near, um, and again, it just went, it just went crazy. It was with Luke Stringer, um, Oyster Little Burke back back 2006 and 2010. But again, I had my my heart always set to do something that, um, you know, which which I grew up to do was, you know, to be to do something Italian or or a, an experience where you can implement that growing up Australian. And having that uh, that Italian that Italian thought in your food, and that Italian thought in, in the generosity of your hospitality as well, and that's when I opened Mr Bianco in 2010 in Q. Um, we opened the doors, or I opened the doors, and first day, it people just kind of flooded in. I went, okay. It's it's like that again. I said, great, and I just wanted to have like me in the kitchen and maybe a, you know a couple of a couple of cooks and chefs, and we do some beautiful, beautiful food. And it just it just it was overwhelmingly the support was just absolutely just out of control, um, and you know I, very appreciative. And then I opened uh, Massi, which is the name of my youngest son, Massimo. Uh, in 2015, and that was in 445 Little Collins Street. And again, a busy place, a successful place, and then COVID came. And I think you know what's happening now. So COVID came along, and if you go into Melbourne City at the moment, 
you 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 probably want to set up a bowling ring or something like that because you can get some nice tent and go up Burke Street and you can put like 12, 12 pins and we can all uh, play bowling or bocce or anything like that on the tram stops or maybe just a bit off because the trams still work but there's nothing else really happening. And that's a sad thing about it. A lot of beautiful restaurants, you know, up the top end of Burke or Flinders Lane or, you know, Marcy at 445 Little Collins Street there. And now it's standstill. We don't know what we're doing. So, uh, and the, obviously the orders or the, the state orders is don't go into the city, don't use public transport, don't do this. There's, you know, um, offices can only be at 15 to 20 to 25% office usage. And there's just so much going on. So, Maurizio and I, um, he's, he's always been wanting to come back to Melbourne. And he said, you know, I said, come on, let's, let's give it a go. So we're going to give Masi a little freshen up, uh, obviously with his design feel and so on. And we've got a, 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 a designer. His name is Philip. He's got Latitude Designs, which, you know, just just really we've just, you know, kicked it off. And, and he's going to do a lot of these um, uh, off his own bat because he just loves design and he wants to do it. Um, and he's been very, very supportive. Um, so all these things are kind of ready to go and uh, – and we've, you know, we'll, we'll we'll change up a little bit inside as well, and which which will make it look totally different to what it is now. But again, it'll be what we call it our little Italian design studio. So there'll be design, there'll be artwork, there'll be uh, Maurizio's fashion, the feel of fashion. He's he's a he's very very articulate, uh, precision and eye for detail. His son is. What he keeps on saying is better than him on the floor when at his age. I said, Jesus Christ, if that's the case, then you know <laughs> that's going to be pretty pretty rocking. Um, uh, we've got Joe from Romeo Lane that's going to do some of our cocktails. We're going to keep the the wine list super 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 tight. It'll only be lo-fi natural wines from Victoria. Everything is going to come in casks. Uh, we're going to do some crazy little cocktails and the food. And I've even said, no menu, just nothing. Um, guys, there's going to be veal, some, I don't know, some scarola or some, uh, some rape. We'll do some pastas and whatever else. And if you feel like um, if this is what we have and we can do it, no problem. Or we say, just leave it to us and we'll just cook what we kind of want to do and, uh, and hopefully enjoy it. But um, one of the things as well is that we don't want to have we don't want to use the same templates as, as we've continually been doing because we've seen that COVID, you know, we've just had to, we've just had to survive. We've used any means possible, uh, legal means possible to survive. So, you know, um, there's been some, obviously some government assistance and so on. And depending on what size of business that you are, if you're a little cafe, great. You know that ten thousand, five thousand dollars, whatever you receive, is good. And don't get me wrong, Australia, out of all the countries, we look after our, our citizens and so on. Uh, and yeah, I think we've had a bit of a slip up with um, our non-residents or our students that have uh, that have come here and work in hospitality, and they pay the same tax as what you and I do. And I think they've been overlooked and something that you know, in hindsight needed to be fixed but I think in hospitality as well we've tried our best into supporting them within ourselves so you know some great chefs here in Melbourne like Ben and 
and so on. You know, we all try to give back a little bit, give back a little bit, give back a little bit, but there's only so much you can do, you know. Um, and then all the hard work that sometimes what we create, it just gets gets bowled over. So, again, lockdown. So, you know, how you can't sustain continually. So it just gets difficult and difficult and difficult. But um, now in Victoria, we don't really have a date when we're going to reopen. We've got these kind of percentages where 70, 80 percent and, and so on. But we're just living, we're just kind of living day by day. And so, okay, what's going to happen tomorrow? So then we get really excited that like as of tomorrow, the picnics are going to kind of start opening. But then you read the fine print and it's only for people that are vaccinated, but fully vaccinated. Ooh, okay. So you mentioned the importance of community um, during this time. What do you love about Melbourne and the role hospitality plays within Melbourne? Well, that's right. It's, it's one of these things that, like, you know, there's a, a major disaster that happens somewhere else in the world and hospitality, boom, straight away. We get, get behind it, you know, uh, and we try to send money and, and whatever we can do um, across, across the world to help uh, certain, certain uh, whether it be individuals or countries or uh, so on, the best. And you know what? I think that's because we are a multicultural community uh, you know, my parents came here in 1956. They got on a boat and they came to Australia. They had no idea where they were coming from. I, I still, have, I, I still to this day, you know, people call me different names because I'm not Australian. And when I go to Italy, because they hear my accent or, you know, my, my Italian accent when I speak Italian is not really Italian. So they hear an accent, they call me Australian. So I'm actually not either one. Um, so the community in Australia... Uh, is that we do remember where we're from and we try our best to support the people that are working their way through their way to hopefully citizenship or, or so on. But we make it too hard for them. Like the amount of the, the, the fees that these guys have to pay just to get uh, and they just work their absolute asses off and we don't recognize them enough. Um, you know, saying that, when my mum came here, she was working two or three jobs. And I kind of say to myself, imagine COVID happened back in the 60s and 70s without the communications, without, the, you know, they wouldn't know what to do. They would, if you had to say to them, hey, uh, Maria, can you not work tomorrow because you have to isolate? Uh, and she would say, but I need, to, I need money for my, or Salvatore, Sam, tomorrow you can't work because they would go, what are you talking about? I have to work. I wouldn't care about COVID or not COVID. I have to work. I need, I need to get the money so I can support my family. So I think, you know, amongst all the narrative that goes, goes along in this thing, we kind of forget where we're from. And, you know, whether you're blue or red or liberal labor, who gives a shit, to be honest with you, I think that this divisive narrative that, you know, you have to be like this or you have to be like this or you have to put this fucking label on, you know, on your head and you have to do this and you have to do that. Bullshit. All you have to do is just be a good person, and stop. That's it. Finito. Just, just remember where you're from and do your best and always keep yourself and make sure you have good integrity. Because if you want to do something good for someone, it doesn't matter where you're from, how you are, what sexuality you are, what you want to do, how you do it. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. It just be a person of integrity and you'll be fine. So 
that's that's the thing in hospitality. We try our best. We continually try our best. Sometimes we slip up, but we continually always want to give back. And I know a lot of guys in the industry, a lot of girls and guys in this industry that, that freaking take their shirt off just for their staff, you know, and they're not recognized. What we like to do is look at the person that's, you know, they're taking the tips and the thing. Yeah, so we, we, we recognize these guys that that's hospitality. But the other guys, you know what I mean? The other guys, they're actually doing, doing so much more and how we can – let's focus on that. Um, so that's, that's my thing. Like if you look at what hospitality is now and, and what we've gone through, yeah, hospitality has been hit, but the tourism industry has been hit. The artists have been hit. Uh, the, so, the, 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 the people that give us all this kind of delight and, and good feeling like the singers or the artists or the people that – you know, do cartwheels in the big, big, uh, or on the on the on the um, on the stage. At all, all the all the great things have all been hit. All the things that are kind of, we, do we really need it? Do we really need another TV? Do we really need another thing? Do we really need more apartments being built in the city? Because you know, the population of Victoria has just literally dwindled. They're all going up to Queensland. Do we really need that thing over there? No, we don't. What we really need is, you know, to be united and be good and keep your integrity and make sure that you look after the person beside you. That's it, you know. There will come a time when society does open up again and restaurants are are full. Um, What are you most looking forward to? Uh, Literally, you know what I'm looking forward to? Every time I walk into the, the, well, the restaurant or the restaurants, um, I just, I can still hear people's, murmur you know that you know the chatter the the ding ding you know the little kind of ching ching and and so on and people laughing and that's what i miss the most a lot of the times i leave the restaurant this is a really strange story a lot of the times i leave the restaurant and i just hang out there until it's like nine o'clock or nine thirty or ten o'clock and just i look at my watch and i go why am i leaving at fucking like seven thirty now or eight o'clock like what's going on? And I look outside and there's no one outside because we've got this curfew and I'm going, oh, my God. I understand both sides. You know, I've been fully vaccinated for the last three months. I've done my utmost that I can, you know. But, wow, it's just like, you know, isolating, making sure that, uh, you know, the, the it, you know, people around me are okay. But one thing I do is just that, that noise, that you can, you can see the, the front of house starting to move and, you know, the drinks are coming out. Even just the the anxiety of like getting busier and busier, I miss that. I miss that that thrill. It's that kind of I don't know whether you call it the thrill of the chase or the game or the just that. I'm not I'm not good at kind of staying staying still. Um, I kind of hate it. You know, I I just don't know what to do, and that's why I try to keep myself active as pos- as active as possible. You know, uh, last week let's let's go get on our bikes and we'll. Give some, you know, pasta packs and whatever else to. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's, you know, try to keep active as possible because I know I, I just can't sit on the couch, but I can. I have to stay active, and that's what's keeping me sane. I think. Well, Joe, it's been an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear just a, a portion of your story. Um, please keep in touch, and we'll definitely catch up again soon. Thank you very much, Huck. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. 
Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.